It's Wednesday, 3rd of December 2014. This is HPR episode 1653 entitled Ruth Suhal at Ohio Linux Fest 2014. It is hosted by Ahaka and is about 46 minutes long. Feedback can be sent to swilnick at swilnick.com or by leaving a comment on this episode. The summary is, Ruth Suhal reminds us all that hardware needs to be open to. This episode of HBR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ruth Schul, keynote speaker for the Ohio 2014 Linux Fest. Her topic, the maker community, default to open. First of all, I apologize for my voice. I've had a bit of a cold, so if at some point you can't hear me, just make the universal sign for I can't hear you, which I believe is this. And uh, I will attempt to muster more sound. As Van said, I work for Red Hat. Uh, I joined about seven years ago and initially worked on the brand team. For the last few years, I've been a part of a newer group called Open Source and Standards, which is the part of Red Hat that helps our upstream communities that are so important to Red Hat success. We help them be successful as well. But of course, all of that is only tangentially related to makers. So like Van said, I co-authored a book on Raspberry Pi, and O'Reilly was nice enough to send me, I think, 15 or 20 copies. So. After the second keynote, uh, if you would like one, and there are only 15 to 20 of you who want one, come see me over here and I will give you a copy. Uh, I also write for opensource.com, as he mentioned, not as much as I used to some number of years ago. Uh, if you were here a number of years ago, I used to give talks on opensource.com. And I'm a senior editor at a site called Geek Mom, uh, where it's exactly what you think it is. I talk about Star Trek and nerdy things and being a mom. Not necessarily in the same sense. But most importantly, uh, as relates to this talk, I'm also a maker of things. I make lots of things. My first instinct when I see something is, how can I make that thing? Not, how can I buy that thing? If I can sew it, sculpt it, frost it, bake it, solder it, crochet it, knit it, rivet it, hot glue it, I'm probably going to try to make it. And if I don't already know how to do it, I'm going to figure it out. And when I tried to find pictures to demonstrate this, I realized that I only make things that I can wear or eat. <laughs> I'm kind of okay with that. Those of you who are home brewers will recognize what happens when your yeast works really well. It turns out that looks kind of like a cupcake. <laughs> and I said my open source work wasn't really related to makers, and that's true on a, a fine granular sense. We work with communities like RDO and Overt and Gluster, and those things aren't necessarily really that related to makers, but on a grander scale, open source is very much important to the maker community, or at least I think it should be, and that's what this talk is about. So presumably, since you're all here, you already all know what open source is, or if you didn't this morning, you do now. So let's talk about what a maker is. I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with this word. I love it because it's very definitive. It tells you quite succinctly what it is. 
maker, one who makes. The problem I have with the word is because it gives people sort of, they go to certain things, like maybe the magazine, or they think a maker is somebody who plays with Arduinos and LEDs and makes things blink. You can make things that don't blink. It's true. <laughs> they think of 3D printers. They think of these very narrow fields of making. But in reality, a maker is someone who makes. It is simply about what you have made. And it doesn't matter if it's good to you, if it's good to anyone else. What is important is that you have created. If it's a bucket of sand that you turned upside down and called a sandcastle, you are a maker. And what I love about this other sandcastle is it says anything once, which, like I said, is basically my maker philosophy. I will make anything absolutely once, and then I may go, that was a dumb idea, and I'm never doing that again. <laughs> we as humans are makers. It is absolutely intrinsic to our nature. It is part of who we are. But there's this path that many of us take as individuals over our lives that I think mirrors our behavior as a species over the last tens of thousands of years or so. So we're going to go back through the history of humans creating. Anthropologically speaking, we largely recognize humans to have begun when we started making tools, sticks and stones. But lots of other creatures use tools as well, and so humans are specifically defined as creatures who use tools to make other tools. And so then we mark the beginning of the Stone Age by when Fred Flintstone invented the Whirligig. No, I just want for those of you who glazed over in history class, I want to make sure you're coming along with me, it's going to get good. Yeah, the Stone Age is marked by the beginning of stone tools, which was about two and a half million years ago. These tools changed our existence to our very survival. Up until then, a lot of our food that wasn't gathered, the meat sort of food, was whatever other creatures had left behind because we didn't have the ability to throw a spear at something far away or to rip into something with really tough flesh with our, with our teeth. And so stone tools gave us independence, which is really important later as I talk about what the maker movement is. Shortly thereafter, we developed a taste for not just the function of things, but for the aesthetic. We discovered art. And so archaeologists argue that there's art as much as 100,000 years ago in the Paleolo Paleolithic era. And so much like you did when you were five years old, we started by painting our hands on cave walls. Put your hand up there and blow some dust, and that's why they're all in relief. This is Cueva de los Manos in Argentina. This is actually only about 10 to 12,000 years old. And then came better cave art and drawings and sculpture and the Bradshaw paintings in Australia and the wonderwork engravings in Africa, petroglyphs in Dhaka Monica. We see this all over the world. Wherever humans were arising, there was art and there were tools and there were creation. They were makers. Then with metal tools, we developed agriculture and machines and ever more complicated machines that did ever more complicated tasks, taking us to the furthest reaches of the earth and eventually off of the earth up towards the stars. And so there's a little bittersweet note in here that the picture I chose for the space shuttle is one I took from the launch of STS-135, which was the final shuttle mission. But what's important is that we went from this to this, all from the same innate spirit to make, from the same fundamental part of what makes us human. But in order for any of that to happen, we didn't have to just be makers, we also had to be sharers. Creatures who were willing to tell one another what we had discovered, what we had made, and how to do it how to turn a stick into a spear, or how to blow pigment around your hands to make an impression on the wall. And then somewhere along the way, we developed a bit of a sense of possessiveness. And I like to imagine this, uh, uh, this is, these are my friends Og and Grog, who I like to talk about, they're my caveman friends, because they don't have an actual anthropological evidence for this. I just like to imagine that one day Og came along and said, mm, Grog, how you make that hot pit? And Og said, mm, go get your own lightning bolt. And then I like to assume that they were actually really good friends until Og made bacon and wouldn't tell Grog where it came from. 
<laughs> Let's hop back in our timeline and talk about how that whole sharing thing got derailed by something besides bacon, as delicious as it is. We fast forward to about 500 BC in Greece. There was an, an area called Sybaris, and you can see that it turned out really well for them because this is about all that's left. They invented patents on luxury. And the, the Sybarites and I did have one thing in common. They considered luxury delicious food. And so you were awarded a patent on any particularly innovative culinary delight that you had come up with. You got the profits solely for a single year. And uh, they actually became well known for this. And so now the English words Sybarite and Sybaritic basically mean opulent luxury and, and fantasticness of this sort. In the Roman Empire, blacksmiths literally used trademarks, marks of their trade, to mark the things that they had made. Some anthropologists also argue that they created sort of a precursor to trade secrets uh, because of the simple concept of what happens if I own a slave who then learns all of the things about my business and I sell him and he takes that knowledge with him. We then assume the first copyright battle to have taken place a couple hundred more years later. There was this fantastic uh, man named St. Columba, who was an Irish Gaelic missionary, and he and a number of other apostles lived with a guy named St. Finian, which all was going along swimmingly until one day when St. Finian learned what Columba was doing, which was copying his books. And this is what Columba is historically known for. He spent his entire life, day and night, up until the minute he died, painstakingly hand-copying books because they didn't have file shares. And so, then one day, Finian discovers that Columba has taken a particular book from his library, copied it, and he goes, that's not cool. So that copy you made, that belongs to me, because that was my book, and so the copy of it, that is also my book. Finian basically declared it illegal copying, and he went to the king. The king, despite being Columba's cousin, ruled in Finian's favor and famously said, to every cow belongs its calf, to every book its copy. And Irish Gaelic is really hard to pronounce, and so I call him King Copyright McCopywriterson. And then there was a battle in a place that I also cannot pronounce because Irish Gaelic, and, but other people call it the Battle of the Book for obvious reasons, which resulted in the death of 3,000 people in Columbus exile over one book getting copied. In less deadly news, unless they were actually using Cylons, uh, in 1266 the English Parliament declared that all bakers had to mark their bread with their company name, basically. And because I had no pictures of bread from 1266 England, I went with Cylon toast. <laughs> I don't also think about food. I also like beer. And Lowenbrow has essentially the oldest trademark. They've been using some version of this lion since 1383. And then the first true patents were granted in 15th century Italy for glassmakers in Venice. And then England caught on to the idea of patents as a way to theoretically encourage innovation. But in reality, it became a way to encourage monopolies. And thus, pretty much instantly, they invented patent abuse, and about five minutes later, patent reform. <laughs> 1710 is the Statute of Anne, which is pretty well recognized as the first real modern copyright act. And then trade secret law came into existence in England and the US in the early 1800s. And that fast forward kind of brings us up to what we recognize as relatively modern times. And you all know that pretty well because you have the internet. So let's reflect on that zip-zip through history that we took from sharing in order to eat and survive to this exploding system of protecting and mine, 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 and think about it on the scale of one person's life. When you were a child, pretty much the first thing that you're taught, besides potty training, is to share. Your parents tell you to share. Share with your brothers and sisters. Share that cookie. Share that toy. Share with your friends. But then for some reason, all the adults teaching that lesson seem to have completely forgotten it themselves. They somewhere along the way simply stop sharing. They want longer copyright terms and more patents awarded and they want shrouds and secrecy and all of this protection of their creations instead of sharing them. In the end, we're no different from Og and Grog. 
Eventually, we're both going to make the fire, and one day the fire is going to take us to the moon. But it happens so much faster, and so much better, and so much more successfully if they did it together. Likewise, Krog eventually is going to share his discovery of how to sharpen a spear. Together, they're going to have a fine broader ribs dinner. But we spent centuries trying to squirrel away our secrets instead of sharing them, to hold our, our creations until we believe they're in a state to be shared, which in reality probably means in a state that they're very difficult to copy. It's this idea... Ooh, one of my pictures disappeared. I'm sorry, it's actually a really... It's a great picture of a traffic sign that says secret bunker that way. Uh, we've invented this concept of luxury brands and a need for them. We've invented a culture of consuming and disposing, and I don't know what happened to my images, I'm very sorry. Instead of creating and rebuilding, we're disposing. So the maker movement is this slice of humanity that said, enough, we're done with that. We want to be able to rebuild and reuse and create our own things and build a better society off of it. It's these people who have recognized that need within themselves and within others to create and to share. And so the next thing I want to talk about is maker fairs, which this is a picture from uh, one of the world maker fairs. And it was incredibly hard to pick a picture to use for this because it's, I love everything that happens at maker fair and it's all so different. It's like trying to pick your favorite child. It's not okay. And so I went with the, the maker robot is kind of their emblem in the shop bot because I have shop bot jealousy. So it's labeled the greatest show and tell on earth. And, and maker fairs are designed to be a place where makers share their creations, get ideas from one another, thrive together. But of course, people didn't just start creating and making things when somebody slapped the word make on it, Dale Doherty to be specific, uh, and started printing a magazine about it. That wasn't how, obviously, we have always been making. There have always been crafters and creators and tinkers. It's simply what we did. You made your clothes because that's how you got your clothes, and you fixed your television when it broke because you fixed your television when it broke. That's what people did. But it's also because you could. It's because the parts were available to do so. It's because you had that option. Uh, as a seamstress, let me tell you, there were a lot more fabric stores even 20 or 30 years ago, and now I'm down to a really terrible Joanne's where there's a two-hour wait at the cutting table with really surly women. I don't recommend it. <laughs> so we increasingly closed up things that made it more difficult to do yourself until we arrived at this. And it will eventually, in this talk, sound like I am the world's biggest iPhone hater, but in reality, it's just this easy and convenient representation of what we've become as a culture and what we've done to devices. It's this seemingly ubiquitous device that you cannot so much as change the battery in yourself. If I had told my parents in, like, say, 1998 or so that I wanted this thing, even, you know, even as late as 98, 88, whenever you were a kid, Mom, I'd like you to buy me this thing that I'm going to use every day, and thus eventually it's going to have problems, but you can't change the batteries. Your mother would have told you you were insane. <laughs> she would have told you to go buy a Tamagotchi and have fun with it. <laughs> This is a book that I really like. It's called Vintage Tomorrow. It's published by O'Reilly. And it's, uh, it connects this desire to make things with the steampunk movement. And initially, it's like, yeah, what does that have to do with one another? But the two people who wrote it, it's a futurist and a historian. And they recognized that this whole steampunk thing kind of became popular about the same time this whole maker thing became popular. And so steampunk is a modern take on usually Victorian times. You can kind of boil it down to basically thinking of modern technology, but if it were still powered by steam, if we never went past that. Steampunkers are frequently makers. I, I, I'm not sure I've ever met one who wasn't. They have this desire to create and to make. There's a huge crossover. And so the book describes the simultaneous arrival. It's connected through this common desire to return to a time when we did these things for ourselves, when we were makers. And so steampunk is this previous time, and and it all works out. 
And so the, the common thread is that we want to learn to go back to this time when we make things, which we no longer do, as reflected in the make motto, if you can't open it, you don't own it. Which makes it seem like, by their nature, the maker movement would be open by default. But what I have learned is that it is really, really not, and sort of disappointingly so. No one is intentionally sharing or intentionally creating derivative works and building on one another. The truth is, it's quite the opposite, and I'm afraid growing in the wrong direction. And so that's what I want all of you to take away from this, is that you can go out and help change that to the way it should be going, to help makers become more open. So because the maker movement makes you think of Arduinos and bleaky things and 3D printers, we're going to use them for an example and look at the open hardware movement, which again, by its name, sounds like it's open by default. And I don't want to denigrate them because these are fantastic people and the open hardware definition had a lot of work go into it. But I first attended the open hardware summit in person. They, they streamed the whole thing online. It's not a conference like this. It's just one stage and talks go across all day. I first went in 2012, largely as a writer for opensource.com. I thought it sounded really interesting. I thought there was going to be a lot that would be relevant to us. They had uh, super awesome Sylvia, was 11 years old then. She's this kid who has her own maker uh, webcast on YouTube. There was a 77-year-old named Pat Delaney who made a lathe slash mill slash drill out of scrap metal for $150 and said, here's how you can do it. And so I was interested in all these projects and thought there would be a lot of crossover with open source software. And then I came back, and this is the headline I wrote. And that was pretty much the optimistic version. Like, this was the most promising headline I could write about what I had experienced. It wasn't a culture of open by default, but open by accident. Essentially, people who, uh, who, who came, they, they grew up with the internet, and so they said, I'm going to put my thing online because that's kind of what you do. But that didn't mean open source to them. It didn't mean openness. It was just, ah, I just you know, kind of showed what I did. The opening keynote was by Chris Anderson, who was at the time editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine. And this was his opening sentence for the beginning of Open Hardware Summit. Everything I have learned as I built my own business is because people shared what they knew. But then he went on to talk about the limitations of open hardware. And he finally said that the, the solution is alternatives, like maybe a conditional license with restrictions on commercial use, or only releasing the schematics, or having open software on closed hardware. And finally, he said, I don't think we should be dogmatic about this. We need to consider other possibilities and approaches to open-based innovation, not open innovation. Somewhere along the afternoon on the schedule was Brie Pettis, who you may recognize as the founder of MakerBot Industries, the MakerBot 3D printer. The reason it was really interesting that day was because it was about three days after MakerBot announced that the Replicator 2 would not be open. The reason that is interesting is because Brie had spent several of the previous years giving interviews like the one on the left in which he talked about how critical it was to be open. If you can't see that in the back, he says, in the future, people will remember businesses that refuse to share with their customers and wonder how they could be so backwards. And then two years later, when people had cloned the MakerBot, he said, you know what, we decided we're not really okay with that, and so we're closing it up. For presenters and attendees, I kept hearing the same sorts of stories of open by accident rather than open intentionally, open by default. I saw almost no Linux. It was all Windows, mostly Macs. Uh, and several of the first open hardware summits were held right before New York Maker Fair. And so then I would go to Maker Fair. And it was about the same time that I started presenting projects and presenting as, as a speaker at the World Maker Fairs and at local mini Maker Fairs. And so I got in this habit of walking around to the other makers at the Maker Fairs and asking some simple questions. Uh, things like, is this open hardware? Are, are your plans online? Have you shared this anywhere? 
is there anything open about this? I don't think I've ever asked quite that blatantly. Uh, it depends on the project. And over the last few years, I feel like there's been a subtle but important change from the greatest show and tell on earth to the greatest show and sell on earth. And I don't mean to say I dislike maker fairs anymore. I, I love them. I think they're an important thing, but I also really believe that they should go back to something more like what they were several years ago. Every time I would ask, is this open hardware? Does it use open hardware? Is there anything open about this? The answer would be, I can sell you one. And the sponsors at Maker Faire have started to change too. And I don't have a problem with sponsors. As a conference planner and a conference attendee, I understand sponsors are critical to your existence. But there's a big difference between this, which is the Radio Shack, Shack learned a solder booth, and really, like, who in here thought Radio Shack was still relevant? And yet some of them actually are doing a really good job in this Arduino makerspace. Some of them are just cell phone stores. But Radio Shack would sponsor this learn to solder booth and teach you to make a little, a little blinking thing, because things blink. <laughs> SparkCon is another Maker Faire sponsor uh, who, this is another Learn to Solder booth, but SparkCon does a lot of events and, and teaches you to make things blink. It's true. Everything <laughs> but there's a big difference between these types of sponsors and the one that almost single-handedly set me down this line of thinking of what happened to Maker Faire. And I couldn't even find a picture of it online, which I think suggests that it was that embarrassing, so I had to use their press release. There was a massive Purina booth which apparently elevated the feeding experience for all the cats at Maker Faire. Good job, Jarena, and your sour cream container with holes punched in it, which seems to be making things. No. <laughs> this, is, this is what I mean by the changing face of, of what's happening in the Maker Faires. But that, all of that is the downside. So let's go back to why all this matters so we see why it's important to encourage the Maker community towards openness. As, as all of us are believers in the open source software and in the importance of it, it's easy for us to forget why it's important. Because we spend a lot of time just knowing that it is and assuming that it is. And we don't spend a lot of time thinking about why anymore. So why does it matter if makers share what they create? So here's, here's my maker friend. He's today's maker. And that means he's the inventor of tomorrow's device. He makes this thing. It might be a toy or an article of clothing. Or it might be something really important, something that saves someone life, someone's life or changes a lot of lives for the better. And so someone comes along and finds that device and learns more about it. And maybe all she can do is change the batteries, and that's good. But maybe she makes it into something better. And that means that she's the next maker. And it's a cycle. And it continues. And this is a cycle that can't happen if any of those pieces breaks. It causes problems that are similar to the situations you're familiar with in software. Things like security flaws, whether it's in software or hardware. Openness means audit. It means better software for everyone. We've seen what happens with DRM, and then over the last year, we've heard more and more about insecurity and networking and other hardware. Even a New York Times op-ed, which is what this is from, pointed to open hardware as a key for a more secure internet. And so those of you who are a little bit older can think about what it means that even the New York Times has printed open hardware is the key to a secure internet, and how crazy that might have sounded even 10 years ago. Closing up things also leads to expensive repairs and repair contracts instead of empowering you to fix things yourselves. So it turns out a third of iPhone users damage their device, which I think is supported by the number of people I see typing on crap screens like that one. In the iPhone 4, repair required 27 screws and three layers of separation and a whole lot of time. In the iPhone 5, it was five screws and two layers. This sounds like an improvement. Except then, to get this independently repaired, the cost increased a whole lot. And so a lot of those independent vendors, when the iPhone 5 came along, said, 
not doing the repairs. You can just take your little self over to Apple. It's going to cost you a lot less and a lot less heartache for me. And of course, then to do it yourself with instructions on YouTube, it costs about 25 bucks. But I'm pretty sure Apple sold a lot of Apple care off this situation. But it's not just iPhones. It's repairs in general. Repair shops are going out of business. Shoe repair shops, TV repair shops. Like, how many of you even remember a TV repairman existing in your neighborhood? I, I mean, I'm 36. I don't remember ever actually having been to one, to be honest. Uh, now we just toss it and get a new one. And that leads to piles and piles of e-waste. So much e-waste. Uh, which is not just a pile of crap, but it's actually got a lot of dangerous chemicals in it. The U.S. alone has gone from producing 2 million tons of e-waste in 2005 to 9 million in 2012, and it's just going up from there. These are the average lifespans of those devices uh, in the U.S. And it's generated not only because people want the new and shiny thing, but because the devices have become difficult to repair or to upgrade. But it's not just about these disadvantages to closing, it's also about the advantages to being open from the beginning. Now, makers definitely skew towards a younger generation, which is not to say that there are plenty of makers on every demographic, but there's definitely this group that has grown up with the internet, and like I said, all of those people who were at Open Hardware Summit, sharing because the internet was there, and that was just kind of what they'd always done, was tell people on the internet what they had done, they have this secondary problem, and it comes from that innate desire to be a maker. And that is that, their accomplishments now have become largely virtual, and it requires at least a phone and probably an internet connection to show you this cool app I made or this website that I made. And so there's this growing desire to have created something tangible <coughs> besides a soda can wall. <laughs> and thus sprung up websites like Instructable. Oh my, well that's special. Do I get it back? I don't get it back. Oh no! Okay, well, I'm just going to relaunch a press and keep talking to you about cool websites. Uh, how many of you have been to a, a website like Instructables or Thingiverse or Ravelry or... What's happening on this side of the room? Like, there's a large chunk of people here who make nothing. Nothing? Somebody who's sitting over here tell me the coolest thing you have ever made with your hands. I'm going to start pointing to people because I'm still... Adult Adult Yeah. Yeah? Yes. Somebody tell me something cool you made with a Raspberry Pi and I'll give you a book. <laughs> I think we established blinking lights right there. <laughs> so we have these cool websites where you can share things and make that whole cycle happen faster, happen more easily. It, it was really difficult. It didn't happen before the internet because basically we needed the internet for this cycle to keep happening. It makes it possible. It makes the learning easier. And then it makes the manufacturing and the sourcing and the marketing easier, the entire cycle. Things that used to take years and years and tens of thousands of dollars now don't require that or a bunch of guys sitting around a desk signing papers, which all of it did before. It just happens in somebody's living room. Or, more likely, in a hackerspace. Now, I kind of use the words hackerspace and makerspace relatively interchangeably, and we could argue later about the fine distinctions, but just roll with me for now. We only have so much time. This is from a, a hackerspace in Berlin. I thought that was a really great to, way to decorate the wall. Uh, in fact, make was originally going to be called hack, and Dale Doherty's daughter was like, hack has some bad connotations, and so that was how it got to be made. So if you've heard me give a talk before, you know that I send you home with a reading list. So we have Venice Tomorrow's. Next up is the Maker Movement Manifesto, which was written by Mark Hatch. He didn't start tech shops, but he's the CEO of them, has been since about 2007. 
Tech shops are a for-profit chain of hackerspaces, essentially, a place where you can go and get access to all of those great tools. Uh, he has a pretty bold vision for tech shop. He believes that it has the unique opportunity to arm a maker movement army with the tools it needs to change itself in the world. Basically, he's saying tech shop can do exactly what I am asking all of you to go forth and help the open source community do. But he spends a whole book backing up his thesis. So much so that after a while, the stories in the book start to feel a little repetitive. I'm like, great, guy found a company. It was successful. Another guy found a company. Successful. Somebody else. Yeah. But they're all great stories. Tech Shop hatched Square, which is the little payment device that I'm sure you've used at some independent coffee shop, and Dodo Case, which are these little phone slash wallet cases. Uh, and these are both really good stories in the book about the success of failing fast, how failing fast leads to succeeding quickly, and how building something in an open space like Tech Shop or another hacker space led to a better product. And so this book is story after story like this, and almost all of them are non-engineers with no background in using any of the tools in Tech Shop who walked in one day, and a week later, or a month later, or six months or a year later, had a huge successful business. But I have to tell you about my favorite one, my favorite story in the whole book. Uh, Hatch is walking around Tech Shop asking people, what are you working on? And he runs into this guy, this middle-aged guy who's working on this thing that he describes as a poorly constructed, clunky, aluminum block-like structure. <laughs> And Guy says, I'm working on a desktop diamond manufacturing device. And then Mark Hash decides he's a little bit crazy when he says, oh yeah, tell me more. And the guy says, yes, all I need now is to rip a magnetron out of a microwave for the necessary plasma ball, and I think I'm good. <laughs> and that's when he starts calling him Crazy Mike. But it turns out, Crazy Mike is actually a physicist who works at a diamond deposition tool company. He actually has experience in this and, and hopes of succeeding. And his end goal, which is fantastic, is to make a diamond ring for his wife. And I don't mean like a ring with a diamond in it. I mean a ring of diamond that she can wear. What's important about this story is it doesn't matter if Crazy Mike ever succeeds. It's a matter that he estimated from his industry experience that even try this through the normal means would have cost him $80,000. But at Tech Shop, it cost him $1,000. That is a literally industry-changing factor of cost. And the book is story after story of people with successes like this. Things that used to take months or years to source and manufacture now take a week. When you've gone from your life savings and a year of your life to a quarterly bonus and a week or a month, that's the sort of change that can completely turn around how R&D and manufacturing and the entire way we know tangible goods come into existence works. And the openness and sharing of that process, the fact that it happened with other people, is absolutely critical to making it happen at all. So I'll tell you a few more examples of great things that are happening. I think some of the most interesting are in the biohacker spaces. So a biohacker space simply means that instead of a CNC machine and a 3D printer, they have PCR machines and DNA isolation and centrifuges and incubators and microscopes and basically a university biology lab, except anybody can use it without the trappings of academia and an advisor telling you what you're allowed to work on. And uh, they've come out with some, some really interesting successes. And if you ever happen to uh, encounter one at a conference like this, uh, this past, I guess, January at scale, uh, the Southern California Linux Expo, they had a biohacker space there, and they let you paint with E. coli on petri dishes, which is super fun. And so then I Googled. Save E. coli. Also, I don't recommend licking your paintings. Uh, but if you Google E. coli paintings, people do really cool stuff with this. And, and that's, that's the fun side of makers. Obviously, there are way more useful things, but E. coli paints also. Then I lost it in my bedroom for a really long time, and I found that it was not as cool. <laughs> there are also pro 
projects like those that spawned out of the Fukushima disaster, and in particular with the Tokyo hackerspace and some groups that were working with Raspberry Pis. And the community felt like it wasn't getting accurate or enough data about radiation and the truth about the radiation that they were encountering on a daily basis anymore. And so this is actually still existing based on the infrastructure they set up. It's accurate radiation readings based on open hardware. That uh, This is a Yahoo site that pulls their open data and puts it into a map for anyone to use. My final story isn't about a project. It's for those of you who like me, your parents. And it's perhaps your job more than anyone else's to encourage your children to go and do all of these things. This is a kid named Jack, and, and he's really cool in that he won the Intel Science Fair Award when he was 15 years old for developing a test for the early stages of pancreatic, ovarian, and lung cancer, which is super cool, but I think his mom is great. <laughs> I read an interview with her, and she's an, anesthet uh, an anesthetist, and they asked uh, about having a son who was doing this stuff. So his school made him take his homemade arc furnace back to his house because, you know, fire. And they asked his mom what she thought, and she said, I told him, don't burn down the house or kill yourself or your brothers. I don't know enough physics and math to know if that's a death ray or not. <laughs> but she didn't tell him no. And that's the important part. She told him to go do it. Heck, I don't know if you built a death rate, but if you did, good job. Don't kill anybody with it. And all of that is the power of the maker. And you already know the power of open source. And we all know the importance now of creating to humanity. And so I believe it's up to us, you and me, and all of the rest of the open source software community who has seen for far more years than the burgeoning maker and open hardware communities the importance of openness and how much more successful it is than the alternative. To go out there, go forth and become a part of these communities and to share with them what we've learned. You all believe in open and you know now whether you thought so at the beginning or not that you are all makers. So go forth and make things better. Thanks. Like the good kind, not the cell phone store kind, and just buy some parts. Actually, um, 
the first thing my coworker uh, and uh, who wrote the book with me and I we got on Adafruit. We just bought a pile of parts and started making things out of them. That's that's what our book is. It's a pile of parts and warnings that you shouldn't do this, but you totally should. <laughs> Any other questions? I haven't heard it in anywhere in the Linux Fest today, but what's what's your take, or have you talked to them more more specifically, um, Buddy and Sean Cross about the Novena project? Yeah. I haven't heard anything about it at this conference, and I'm kind of a little bit involved with that and really excited. Uh, do you think that that's a step in the right direction, or do you think... I think it's an amazing project, and not only because Sean came and keynoted the Fedora conference for us a couple months ago. Uh, so the question for those of you who couldn't hear was about the Novena project, which is an open hardware laptop. And uh, it's created by the people who created the Chumbi, if you remember that little device. Uh, I still have one that wakes me up every morning, even though technically it's a dead project. Uh, yeah, they're, they're definitely still in process and, and doing some really great things. I think um, if you see me after, we should have recorded his keynote where he talks about all of what's new and all, and it was only in August. I, He's watched, all? I watched it. Oh, you did? Okay. Well, hey, you already know as much as I do then. <laughs> Somebody in the back had a question. Do you think the popularity of social media sites have helped or hurt the maker movement? Oh, totally helped. Like, why do you think that social media hurts the maker movement? Well, I don't think it hurts. I think the use of social media by some individuals is not exactly conducive to productivity. Well, so you don't follow those terms. Problem solved. Like, I, I see people complain about so-and-so said something mean on Twitter. Unfollow him. Done. Uh, yeah, the number of things I've learned about, like, uh, I go back to the slide of weird random things I've made. Um, so many ideas I have gotten for things that I made were because of some, oh, actually, I can do this in multiple ways. All right, so that cake, that's my kid's uh, third birthday Star Wars cake. It's Darth Vader on the bottom with Leia on the other side and Chewie with Han Solo on the other side and C-3PO with R2-D2 on the other side and Yoda on top. This was actually inspired by a superhero cake that was the same way, but I'm like, Superman, what up? We can make a Star Wars cake. <laughs> uh, let's see. The Soundwave costume is because I really, really wanted a Raspberry Pi in a costume, and I, this is like the only thing that I've done with a Raspberry Pi that somebody else hadn't already done. Uh, but the one I was thinking of was probably the last one. The TARDIS shoes. I kept seeing other people with TARDIS shoes, and I'm like, I want TARDIS shoes. I wouldn't have thought of that without social media and people putting them in my feed all the time. Actually, that probably causes a lot of my time to go away when people make cool things that I then want. <laughs> That's another of my, uh, my Geiger counter slash Raspberry Pi stories is um, many of the things that you think are original ideas are really not that original. Like, they were original in your head, but they were inspired by something else and somebody else probably already got inspired to it on the internet. And that's not a bad thing. That is your time saver. Like, now you get to go and see how they did it and not make the same mistakes. That's not a bad thing. Uh, and so I joke that everything that I wanted to make with a Raspberry Pi had already been made, and that's actually how I discovered a lot of the cool Geiger counter projects was because a guy at Red Hat sent an email to a list that said, hey, anybody got a Geiger counter I could borrow for the weekend? And I was like, hey, what you doing with it? Like, not, I don't have one. I just want to know what you're doing. He was great. Could you build me one with a Raspberry Pi? <laughs> Apparently, yes, you can. Any other questions? Because I could tell these ridiculous stories all day. How can we as a community help promote others who do like electronic design or other design to use open hardware designs? I have a friend who does electronic design, and I've talked to him about you know okay the designs you come up with 
releasing them open hardware. And his reply to me is, the patents that we get is my employee's retirement, because we can sell them out to a larger company and then we can retire. So how can we then explain to them there's things that are greater than just the monetary value? So technically speaking, you can still get, like Red Hat has a large patent portfolio, but it's a defensive patent portfolio, and employees get awards just like that, but it's not retirement level. That's impressive. Uh, I think it's, it's sort of along the lines of how people ask a lot, uh, you know, my company only uses Windows, or they insist that we use this closed source solution. How do I convince these people that we use open source? And I think it's a lot like that, and that you have to find what the benefit is to that person, what will resonate with them and their project, and why it's important. And so there are just gobs and gobs of stories of, well, I mean, you know, turn to the hackerspace stories and, and how these things were built better with, with collaboration and with openness. My absolute favorite, like, why openness is important story, and if you've ever heard me give a talk, you've probably heard, heard this story, so just come along with me. It's good. You should hear it again. Uh, <laughs> is Karen Sandler, who uh, is with the Software Freedom Conservancy now, but she did give this talk about how she has a pacemaker because she has a heart condition that requires her to have a pacemaker. And when they put it in, she said, can I see the source code? <laughs> <laughs> and your laughter indicates that you know how well that went. <laughs> and then she said, I'll sign an NDA. Can I see the source code? And they said, no, why would you want to see this? Trust us. <laughs> and so the Medical Device Security Center did this massive report, a uh, study that they did on implanted medical devices, because it's not just pacemakers and found that, number one, those devices carry a lot more information on them than I thought. Like, your name and medical information is on there, and it's not encrypted. And it basically takes what I carry around in my backpack on a daily basis to intercept it and possibly stop your heart. And that is the best story I have about why openness is important. And that source code is not reviewed by the FDA unless the company that makes the device says, hey, could you review my source code? Because you know they're all going to do that. <laughs> but yeah, you just find the, find the thing that's important to them, or find you know, depending on what they're making, how could that be improved by some open device that you know about some other open hardware project? Or just wait until some open hardware project does it better and be like, haha, you should have done that. <laughs> Any other questions? So a lot of people have looked at open source software and said, hey, that's cool, we should do something like that. So we have open education and we have uh, open, open this, we have open music, we have you know, uh, open licenses to write and uh, law and, and all kinds of things. And it seems to me like with the maker movement where people are uh, creating something that's a thing that they maybe they can sell, that there is a difference between what we do with software, which is infinitely reproducible, versus making a thing. But I just wondered if you disagreed with that in terms of, because I mean your whole point, I guess, is that we should be encouraging that. When it, to me, it seems like maybe there is a little bit of a difference. Well, so I may have implied and if I did, I apologize, that I am a post-profit. I am not. I work for a billion dollar open source software company. I think profit is awesome. But that also means Red Hat and the many who have followed it have, have shown that it is possible to be open and still make money. Those things are not mutually exclusive. Now, open hardware has a different set of legal problems in that it is a tangible good, and so it has different legal problems. And I think that may be a contributing factor to what has made them go down a slightly different path. But I still don't think it is impossible to separate, to, to bring together openness and still making a profit. There are plenty of projects that are still open. Oh look, Arduino somehow is making money. All of these open source 3D printers are somehow making money. 
I'm sorry, Brie Pettis, it worked, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't mean to imply that I don't think anyone should make money, and I do think that tangible goods, whether open hardware or something else, have other hurdles that software doesn't. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, that they can't both happen. That answer your question, or did I just ramble? You wrote a really nice ad for OpenSearch.com in your first couple of sentences. You should write for them. <laughs> okay. Any other questions? Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.